The story is told that M.T. Brackbill, an early science and astronomy professor at then Eastern Mennonite College, had a unique daily morning routine. Upon arising, he would go to the east window of his home and raise the shade, look out that window, and say aloud, today is the day, or maybe the day, that Jesus Christ will return. He said this as a reminder to himself, as a reminder to his family, that the reality of the return of Jesus Christ was now one day closer. And as we look this morning at Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21, in this final sermon from the series on the book of Revelation, in this section of the book, Jesus emphasizes three times in, these, in this short passage that he is coming soon. He emphasizes and says three times in this section, I am coming soon. And in contrast, there's only one other time in the book of Revelation, in his message to the letter, or the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, where he says in Revelation 3.11, he says, I am coming soon. As that reminder. So he's He's emphasizing here in this passage, this last section, that indeed he is coming soon. So we'll uh, look at this section. This, this is found in the Pew Bible, page 1231 and 1232. It's also on the PowerPoint. And again, I've asked uh, Anna Null to read this passage this morning. Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of the book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy 
continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy in this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you, Anna. Now, in this section, there are no more visions of unique uh, animals and creatures, uh, strange animals and creatures that come out of the sea. There's, we do not find a dragon. We do not find a beast, or we did not find the mark of the beast that we had earlier. Instead, this passage is straightforward. This passage is similar to the passage at the beginning of the book of Revelation, where Jesus is writing the words of prophecy to the seven churches. This passage is encouraging the early church and also is encouraging each of us today to remain faithful and true to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be prepared for the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ. The angel informed John that all aspects of this message are a prophecy sent from the Spirit of God. When, in verse 6, Then the angel said to me, Everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets 
has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Now, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So the angel asserts that indeed this prophecy, the prophecy that we find in the book of Revelation, is indeed true and testifies to that. Indeed, this prophecy came from God, from the God of that, the creator God who formed the world, from the God of the universe, we might say. So this prophecy cannot be ignored. This prophecy needs to continue to be read and studied and rightly understood. This prophecy is indeed for the people of God, for the church to remain faithful to God. Robert Mounts comments, This announcement is not an infallible timetable, but an urgent expectation. End of quote. I'll have more to say about that a bit later in my message as we look at the takeaways. So it's not to develop a timetable for what will happen in the future, but instead to develop an urgent expectation of preparing to meet the Lord, preparing to meet Jesus Christ. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see a repetition of an incident that happened earlier in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, where John then, as John is experiencing the receiving this vision from the angel, and then John falls down and gives worship and adoration to the angel. That happened back in Revelation 19, and here it happens once again, where John decides to, to give worship and praise to the angel, the one who was showing him this vision. And again, as in the previous incident, John is rebuked by the angel and is told, worship only God, do not do that. He's told in no uncertain terms that worship and adoration do not belong to anyone else other than to God. He is told that he should not worship angelic beings. Worship and adoration belong only to God, not to other things or to angelic beings. Then in verse 10, John is instructed to not seal up the words of the prophecy for another day or for a later time. In contrast, in the other apocalyptic book of the scriptures in Daniel, Daniel is told to there, he's told to seal up the vision for a later time because it will not be coming to fulfillment immediately, right away. We're here. The saints who are receiving this message are under the dominion of the Roman Empire. 
and they need to be encouraged. They need to be, uh, they need to be seen that God is with them, that God walks with them. And therefore, he is not to seal up the words of the prophecy. John Yates says, the angel insists that the book not be sealed because the faithful saints must always live as though their lives will soon come under the scrutiny of a just God rather than because fulfillment is chronologically imminent, end of quote. And now in verse 12, according to verse 12, Jesus will reward the works of everyone, that Christ is coming for everyone. Those who are devoted to the Son, those who are, have professed allegiance and loyalty to the kingdom, and those who have not. Those who have not given their loyalty to the Lamb will experience, as John describes here, the eternal lake of fire. <clears throat> Again, uh, quoting commentator Wall says, the imminence of the coming of Christ should evoke not elaborate charts and timetables, but repentance from sin and faithfulness to the Lamb. As Anabaptists, or particularly as Mennonites, we have professed our understanding of what we believe to be the reign of God and also about the return of Christ. And we have professed that in Article 24, entitled The Reign of God, in our Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective. And what we say there is that we believe that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead. And a Christ's glory is coming from again for judgment. The dead will come out of their graves, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The righteous will rise to eternal life with God, and the unrighteous to hell and separation from God. Thus, God will bring justice to the persecuted and will confirm the victory over sin, evil, and death itself. End quote. That's what we say we understand about the reign of God and about the coming, the end of the time when Jesus will come. And according to John 1 1, Jesus was present. At the time of creation, Jesus was not only present, but Jesus was actively involved in the creation of the world. We find that in the beginning of John, the first chapter. And now, according to, the, according to this passage, the last event of all time, of heaven and earth, Jesus is also involved because Jesus will come from heaven to earth. Jesus will come and, and uh, we will await his glorious appearing. So let us now then go to the takeaways from this passage. What can we learn from this passage? Number one, let us not speculate and form timetables. 
for Christ's return, but instead focus on the mission that God has called us toward and focus on being ready to meet the Lord in the air. And I forgot to mention that if you care to, you can fill in your blanks in the bulletin uh, under message notes, and this is the first, the takeaway is listed there, and this is the first uh, uh, place where you can indicate the, uh, the underlined words. Timetables and also the, the mission that God has called us to. Now, some persons see the book of Revelation as, a, as indeed that, a timetable on what will happen in our century, in our time. And some of those persons have, uh, have seen the European Union and one world government as taking place, that will be taking place. And therefore, they now need to revise their teaching and their understanding because, as Paul Schrag points out in, in his editorial in Mennonite World Review, that uh, the, with the United Kingdom withdrawing from the European Union, it's no longer a union of all the, the major countries in, in Europe, and therefore they need to revise their, their understanding about that. But we are warned repeatedly in Scripture that we are not to set dates. We are not to set the timetable for when Christ will return. In Matthew 24, Jesus discussed with the disciples the events of the latter days. He discussed this with the disciples. When they will see the coming of the Son of Man with the clouds in the heavens, as Jesus describes it in Matthew 24. And then he says in verse 36, However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And then also, the disciples, after the resurrection of Jesus, were excited about the, about the kingdom and about the coming of the kingdom. And after the resurrection, uh, Luke records in Acts 1. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you in, to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and in the ends of the earth. And so Nelson Crable summarizes this, this passage, and Nelson Crable suggests that Jesus is saying, in other words, forget about predicting the future and get on with the task of mission, end of quote. The disciples are interested in when, are, when is the kingdom going to be destroyed? And Jesus is saying, don't be worried about the time, when is the kingdom going to become, be coming? And Jesus is saying, don't be concerned about the timetable. Instead, get on with what I am calling you to do. Get on with the mission of Christ. Get on with experiencing the power of the Spirit and using that power of the Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and throughout the world. 
So, same way for us today. Let us get on with the mission of God. Let us use, let us use the power of the Spirit to invite our friends and our neighbors, those in our sphere of influence, to invite those persons to also profess loyalty to the kingdom of God and to give their allegiance to, to Jesus Christ and to then be inviting them into the city of the New Jerusalem. Jesus says and to his disciples, and Jesus says to each of us today, keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So I would suggest that we follow the example of M.T. Brackville and follow the example of anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ and looking forward to his coming and with eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ without developing charts and timetables as to when that will take place. The second takeaway, and that is the invitation to accept Christ's gift of salvation continues to be open to the end of time. Here in this passage, the spirit and the bride say come. And let everyone who hears say come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. And let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift, not something to be earned. So the invitation to salvation, the invitation to accept and receive this gift is open to the end of time. And it's my understanding here that the tense of the Greek verb to come is a continuous action. So the invitation will continue right up to the end of time, continue to come, calling persons to receive the gift of salvation. The spirit and the bride say come. The water of salvation is a gift. Eternal life is the gift that Christ gave on the cross. Barbara Brown Taylor, a noted preacher and now I believe a college professor, in her book, Speaking of Sin, says, because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us, we try stuffing it full of all sorts of things, but it refuses to be filled. It rejects all substitutes. It is the holy of holies inside of us, which she says, only God can fill, end quote. The third takeaway is each of us has a choice to make, and our choice is whether or not to accept the gift of salvation. It's interesting. There are seven blessings found in this book of Revelation. And the seventh blessing is found here in verse 14. 
where he says, blessed are those who wash their robes so they'll have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Who wash their robe, who wash their robes. And here, once again, in, in contrast to Revelation 7, here where the word wash was past tense, here the word for wash is a continual washing. It means continual action, continuing to come to Christ, asking Christ for cleansing, to cleansing our robes. To continue to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So nothing unclean can enter the city of God. So these robes need to be cleansed. And as we sin, we can continue to come to God for forgiveness in confession and penitence and asking for God's grace. This passage also tells us that there is a great separation coming. In the ancient world, the dog was not one who would be curled up on the lap of the the owner of the dog, and it was not a, a family pet. It was not, but instead, um, the in the words of Barclay, it was the street scavenger, the homeless and savage and mang, mangy and and thieving uh, animal. And here in verse fifteen, the writer lists seven sins. Seven indicating per completeness of all those who are left outside the city of God, those who have not washed their robes, who have not been continually cleansing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Another takeaway to mention briefly, which I uh, expounded on earlier in an earlier passage because this is the second time where, where John falls down to worship the angel. But the takeaway here is to worship God alone. The worship of idols is not allowed. John, as I indicated, was ready to worship the angel. But the angel pointedly directs him and pointedly says, you are not to do that. There are no other things, no other creatures, no other beings in heaven or on earth that is worthy of our adoration and praise. And then number five. Number five, our deeds and our lifestyle actions are part of our worship. And in the letters to the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus continually reminds these believers, the persons in these churches, where Jesus continues to say, I know your works. In other words, it's not simply enough to confess with our words what we believe. We also need to put into shoe leather, we need to put into action. So we can say that our confessions of faith are our orthodoxy, our confession. And those confessions and those professions are important and have been important down through the years. But what is vitally important is also how we live. And we can refer to this, and some persons do, as orthopraxis. How we live, how we flesh out what our words say and what we believe. And yes, that does make a difference. As Nelson Crable emphasizes in his book, 
where he discusses the Amish shooting here in 2006, the astonished world watched in amazement when the Amish reached out in forgiveness and grace to the Roberts family after Mr. Roberts had killed a number of Amish children and then turned the gun on himself. And when they were asked how they were able to respond in this way, the Amish leaders referred to the Lord's Prayer and the petition to God to forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. One Amish minister reported, we don't have a church service, a wedding, a funeral, or an ordination without the Lord's Prayer. Amish toddlers learn the Lord's Prayer and school children recite it every morning. So Nelson Crable emphasizes that the Lord's Prayer is at the heart of Amish worship, shaping allegiance to Jesus and inspiring reflexive behavior patterned on Jesus' words and actions, end of quote. Now, as a former teacher and uh, wanting to use some teaching methods in uh, the, the preaching this morning, I decided it's important that we review what we have covered in this whole series of sermons from this final book of Scripture. And so some of the significant learnings that I want us to be reminded of Uh, of in this last sermon. Number one, the book of Revelation gives strength, hope, and encouragement in the midst of persecution and is not a timetable of end-time events that tells us the direction of the world in the 21st century. Again, to emphasize that. There's only one place in this book where Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's only one. And yet many persons have picked up this image of Jesus as the lion. Instead, in the book of Revelation, the primary portrayal is Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he was the only one who was able, in Revelation 5, He was able to open the seals of the book. And I would suggest that this was a primary event in the book of Revelation, where this vision of Jesus as the lamb who was slain is the one who has the authority and the power to open the book. The book of Revelation is a book of worship, Worship and adoration of the sacrificial Lamb of God. So, as I indicated earlier, the believers were under the domination of the Roman Empire. And many of them were put to death and did not recant of their beliefs because Jesus gave them the strength and the power to remain faithful. The second item that I would suggest is that in the book of Revelation, we become aware that there's a great enemy of God. 
The devil is a deceiver, a liar, Satan, who was thrown out of heaven. And in my sermon on His Time is Short, I emphasized that Satan is angry because he knows his time is short. He knows that he has been defeated. And yet, one of the great paradoxes of the Bible, one of the great paradoxes of the New Testament is that the devil is a defeated foe, yet also the enemy, the devil, has power and great power. Number three, the book of Revelation gives to us a vision of heaven where there's a great multitude of saints from every nation, language, and people, and where we shall be in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. We see this symbolized by what John refers to as this number, this number of perfection, 144,000. 144,000 of the saints are sealed and they are standing then before the Lamb of God worshiping with a loud voice and they give adoration to God. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. The last one that I'd like to emphasize and review is that Revelation calls us from the worship of the empire where we live on this earth to the worship of the lamb that was slain to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this book, there are many symbols, symbols of the dragon, symbols of the four or the uh, seven horsemen, the beast, from the, the beast from the sea, and the trumpets, and many, many symbols. But on, the, on this earth, where we live in our particular nation state, the nation also has symbols for its allegiance, symbols such as a particular political party, and the national anthem, the flag, and the salute to the flag. So this book calls us away from the worship of those symbols, calls us away from allegiance to those symbols, and invites us to give total and complete allegiance to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as this book concludes, Jesus says once again, Surely I am coming soon. And as Gene Boring points out, these are Christ's last words before his actual appearance as history's judge and redeemer. In this time of great despair in our nation, and in this time of lots of turmoil, Let us follow the example of the science professor, science and astronomy professor, to live, to live with the expectation of the return and the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. This may be the day 
of the return of Christ, where Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.